Luke chapter 17, verse 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he'd been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up go and, and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two young women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. And Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would, uh, Lord, that you would guide us through this text, Lord. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it correctly in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So in this story, in the begin, chapter 17, verse 11, we're having a, a break in the context of the story. We're, we started, the last section started back in verse chapter 14. Jesus had been invited over to lunch at the, at the Pharisee's house. Uh, there was a sick man, and it was his trap, and, and basically Jesus calls him out. And then he begins teaching from um, that time all the way through chapter 16, or 17, verse 10. And in 17, verse 11, we see that the story kind of moves on. Jesus is journeying from this, the Galilee region down to Jerusalem, which is down in the southern part of the map. 
And in verse 11, we read, he was on his way to Jerusalem. He was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And so the story kind of shows Jesus, uh, just so you know, here's the Sea of Galilee. There's a river that flows from the Sea of Galilee south to the Dead Sea. It's the Jordan River. This region up here is the region of Galilee. It's kind of in blue. You might not be able to tell the color. Um, This green section is the section of Samaria. It's a different geographical location. Um, The people there are different. Samaritans live in Samaria. It just makes sense, right? Samaritans were Jewish people who had kind of wandered from the faith. They'd kind of merged with the culture. Um, They weren't really practicing. They'd become, um, they were co-mingled or co-married with um, non-Jewish people. They didn't like the Jewish people and the Jewish people had a strong disdain for them. So this area was often a point of conflict. And so Jesus is kind of, we don't know where he is, um, but this is like the borderline. Somewhere heading south where these two regions kind of come together, Jesus is walking and he comes into a village. We don't know the name of the village. We don't know where this village is other than roughly between Galilee and Samaria. We see that there are 10 leprous men. This leprosy was a highly contagious disease. If you had it, you were an outcast of society. You were not allowed to enter into the village or the town. You had to stay clear from people. If you were had to commingle with people or go near people, as you walked, you had to scream out, unclean, unclean, unclean. You had to identify yourself so people couldn't touch you. And Jesus is entering this town, and at the outside of the town, there's these ten leprous men. They're standing at a distance. Jesus isn't going to bump into them. He's heading into town. But sort of on the horizon, he sees these ten guys who begin essentially not yelling at Jesus, but they're speaking loudly to get his attention. Verse 13, they raise their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And this Christ, I've just been pondering this all week. These are guys who have done probably everything to get well and nothing has healed them. Their skin has boils, terribly painful. They have no hope. And they see Jesus coming to him and they identify him as master. Have mercy on us. Withhold this punishment that we deserve or whatever. They, they just need help. What, you know, I've never been in the medical field, but going to hospitals and going to see people, especially when they're in pain, it's a terribly difficult thing to see, to see and to live through. And these guys are in extreme pain. They have nowhere else to go. And they see Jesus and they call out to him, have mercy on us. Will, will Jesus just walk by them, ignore them, act like they're not there? But Jesus responds when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. Interesting. He doesn't say you're healed. He doesn't say you're going to be healed. He says, just go to the priest. Now, the priest, if you were cleansed of leprosy, if you were healed of leprosy, you would have to go there. There was like, I think it was a seven day process. It was a long process to make sure that you didn't have leprosy and only the priest could declare that you're clean. And I can just imagine these guys like go to the priest. I can see I'm not clean. Why is he telling me to do this? That reminds me of the Old Testament story when the, the commander of the army comes to Elijah. He's got his illness. I might have been leprosy. It could have been leprosy. It was leprosy. Larry's giving me the nod. 
he goes all the way on this huge journey to see Elisha, to get healed. Elijah's like, all right, brother, just go dunk yourself in the river seven times. And this guy, Haman, gets furious. Are you kidding me? I travel all the way here, and you tell me just to go dunk myself seven times in the Jordan River? And he's furious. He's about to storm off. And his, like, his guy in second in command kind of looks at him and says, hey, brother, if he told you to do like a bunch of jumping jacks, do the hokey pokey, do some handstand push-ups, and then drink some juice, you would have been super stoked. And you would have done it in a heartbeat. But now he tells you just to go dunk yourself in the Jordan. And now you're like storming off mad. Why don't you go just dunk yourself in the Jordan? And so the guy does it and he's, he's healed. And it's, it's like this funny, it just doesn't make sense. And so Jesus just says to them, just go to the priest. Like, what does he say? Go show yourselves to the priest. He doesn't say anything about being healed. He doesn't say, give him any other hope than go see the priest. If I'm these guys, okay, so you want me to go to the priest to confirm that I have leprosy to come back to you or something? Well, they turn and they leave. And we see that, and they were, and as they were going, they were cleansed. So they make this turn. I don't, by faith, they just do what Jesus says. They're hopeless. They have no other instruction. I don't know. But as they turn, as they begin journeying there, like they suddenly, maybe they look at their arms. They look, whoa, whoa, whoa. My skin's come back. I like, my sores are healing. I'm not in pain anymore. I'm healed. Now, I don't know if these 10 guys or nine of them were Jewish and there was one Samaritan. Could be, I don't know. But I'm assuming that these nine guys continue to the priests because they want to continue their cleansing process to make sure that indeed they are healed so they can have human touch again, that they can be interact with other people. But the one he stops in his tracks and he returns to Jesus. Verse 15. Now one of them, when he saw that he'd been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. This word loud voice is lit where we get the word literally megaphone, like, like loud voice. Glorifying God. And he falls on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. So as this guy comes, Jesus is like, wait, hey, whoa. I thought there were 10 of you. How come, what happened to their nine? Why did only one return and give glory and worship God? And I don't want to skim over this point. This is a significant point here. People in our culture will tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. This is huge. Before I make my point, I want us to turn over in Luke's writing to Luke, to Acts. Um, it, it's the part two of Luke. So Acts um, chapter 14. And there's a story here that's somewhat similar. It's actually one of my favorite stories in Acts because it's kind of hilarious. <clears throat> they go from worshiping to wanting to kill him. And so in Acts chapter 14, in verse 8, we read this story, Paul and Barnabas have been basically on this mission trip. They've been proclaiming the gospel. Lives are being changed. They come to Lystra. In verse 8 of chapter 14, we read, At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. 
This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the um, Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas, and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd. So here they heal a guy. Just Jesus has healed uh, 10 leprous guys. These guys just heal um, one guy. Everybody in the town recognizes Paul and Barnabas as having some sort of divine power. They think they healed this guy who's been sick from birth. We know this guy. These guys are God or gods in their understanding, their Greek understanding. So then they basically... Get everybody. Let's have this big sacrifice. Let's start worshiping these two guys as God. Just like this one leper or former leper is doing at Jesus's feet. But notice Paul and Barnabas's reaction. They immediately ripped their clothing. They tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also, men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. He said, don't worship us. You worship God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. Everything that's in the earth, that's who you worship. Now turn with me over to Colossians. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Colossians is actually going to be the next book that we're studying when we finish Luke. I think it's so relevant for our culture today of who is Jesus. And Paul, who just said this, don't worship us, but worship the God who created the heavens and the earth. He continues in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created. By who? By Jesus, all things were created. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's fascinating. Scientists will tell you today When they look at the cells of the human body or anything, something is holding the cells together. Like when you look at cell, like I'm not a science guy, so I'm going to get kind of like lost in my terminology. But from a little kid, when you start learning about molecules, something is holding them together. And the second law of thermodynamics is breaking everything down and decomposition in our aging happens when things start falling apart. And the scripture here in the first century He says that Christ holds all things together. Fascinating to me. And you might not find it fascinating, but I find this absolutely fascinating. That's why I circled it in my Bible. Um, It says, he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was by the Father's good pleasure for 
all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him. I say, whether things on earth or things on heaven, this is fascinating. This is the apostle Paul writing, going back to Luke and looking at our story in Luke chapter 17. Paul was one of the Pharisees. Paul, before he became a Christian, was in the camp trying to kill those followers of Christ. Until he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and his whole world was changed. And so when we come to Luke. And we see verses 17 and 18 of this one leper, one healed leper coming back to Christ. And Jesus answers and says, were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this one foreigner? Like this is power. Jesus is saying this guy came back. To give glory and to worship God and he's speaking of himself? If he's not God, his reaction should have been the same as Paul and Barnabas, tearing his clothes. And so you, it's just not true when people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Like, this is huge. Jesus sees this guy. Where are the other nine that wanted to come worship and glorify God? Why didn't they come back? The God. Who's Jesus? The guy who created and sustains the whole universe. This is who Jesus is. We can't miss this point. Jesus is God. And Jesus said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. And when I look at this story, when I look at my own life and wonder, well, what are some, what, man, this, what are the practical applications of, how does this apply? Josh McDowell in his famous book, um, whatever, it's more than a carpenter. What? I don't know. One of the books. I thought it was more than a carpenter. But he says that Jesus can either be liar, Lord, or lunatic. Like if he's a good teacher, a good man, he can't say that he's God. So he's either got to be a liar or maybe he could be crazy and he could kind of accept all this stuff. But he can't be all. So the evidence supports that he's Lord. And I love the picture of these 10 guys. Here they are in their desperation, calling out to Jesus. Help us. You're our only hope. Jesus responds. They're healed. Nine of them go away. I can't tell you how many times in my life I was those nine guys. As I started going to church and I started to kind of get a baseline of things, I was still very much in the world. I'll never forget a morning when God got a hold of me. Big time, I think. You know, I always say I don't have the gift of moderation. I was never, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. It's, it's great when it applies to my Christian faith. It wasn't good when I was applying it to the world. And I'm pretty sure that one day I had basically a Saturday night or Saturday, who knows when the drinking started, but I had been so drinking all weekend and so long that I think I stopped Saturday night early, but I'm pretty sure I had alcohol poisoning. I never went to the doctor or anything. And I'll never forget the Chargers game was on and I was like in the bathroom just vomiting, like vomiting bile. My, like I thought my insides were going to be on my outsides. And I just remember like seeing stars, like my head in the toilet bowl. And I remember just like, Lord, if I would just survive this, I'll change my ways. And I don't know if I changed on that day. 
But that day stood out to me, like where my hypocrisy began to like catch up with me. Where I started to realize, like, man, how many times have I like prayed to God and then He responds, and then I just walk away, like, oh, I'm glad I feel better. Like God had nothing to do with it. And God's so at work in our life, and we need to come back like that one guy and give Him praise and glory. This, you know, there's these times in my life when I when I have mile markers when it's like, man, I've really grown. I'm maturing in the Lord. I don't know, but 15 years ago, I stubbed my toe or cut myself, and I didn't swear. I was so stoked. It was like, man, I'm like bleeding, and all I said was, rats. Like, I did no profanity came out. It's like, ah, God is at work. Well, Monday, I had another one. You guys all know last week I was sick. Bad sick, like like two weeks. It was like right up there with Mongolia for me. It was horrible. I went to Mongolia. I got very sick in Mongolia. I'm not making fun of Mongolia. I love Mongolia. But Mongolia gave me the greatest gift of sickness that I'd never experienced before in my life. Two weeks ago, I felt like I was remembering Mongolia as I was sick. Well, because of the sickness, because our whole family went down, our monthly trip up to San Luis Obispo to Anna's grandpa's house, we canceled it because we weren't feeling well. And so then... I'd run a bunch of errands. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to get kind of front load my week, kind of get ahead so I can, you know, whatever at the end of the week. It's raining. Run a bunch of errands. And Monday afternoon, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, um, I'm going to run to Costco, pick up goldfish because we consume like a massive amount of goldfish at this church. <laughs> really, buy stock in goldfish. <laughs> like it's like as long as, as long as Christ hasn't come, you know, the Pepperidge Farm is going to be okay. So I'm going down there. I make it like the three miles. Of course, the rain starts. And then all of a sudden, I make it three miles. I get down to Miller and Valley Center Road right by Portino's. All of a sudden, the check engine light flashes on. And in like an instant, like every single warning light that could possibly come on my car came on. It was like, knucklehead, stop, pull over, don't go any further. It got my attention. So... I basically pull into the Partino's parking lot and I backed in because I'm like, I have a feeling that this stop's going to result in a tow truck. And so I pull out. I'm like, well, what do you do when you break down? You got to pop the hood, which I don't know anything. Like, I know that there's supposed to be like, I know that there's supposed to be an engine in there and there's hoses and there's like other stuff. I know there's a battery. And of course, this all happens right as the rain starts coming down. There had been a time in my life when I would have been a little bit more upset but I popped the hood, and it was like, I thought oil, I thought the car had exploded. Like, oil was, like, dripping off the hood, all over the battery. I'm, like, shaking because I know it's not going to be free to fix this, this situation. <laughs> and so I, like, call the mechanic. I'm like, this isn't good. This isn't good. I need help. They're like, oh, we'll be able to take care of it. No problem. Now, what? Now, what's going on there? I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's oil. Like, you sure it's oil? That doesn't make sense. I'm touching the stuff, I'm smelling, I'm like, I don't know. It's it's wet stuff. <laughs> it looks like oil to me. And the guy's like, doesn't make well, long story short, water pump, transmission, everything fell up. I mean, big hit today or this week. And you know what? I didn't like freak out at all. Like, 
like genuinely like in the midst of this, like I'm going, oh man, it seems like just two weeks ago I said that we're supposed to rejoice always. And like, even in these situations, we're supposed to praise God because in this, like in this breaking down, like I know the tow truck company has always cared about me, but this opportunity gave them a, a, you know, an opportunity to show their love for me and how much they care about me. Got to see the old mechanic that I hadn't seen in a long time. And I'm just like, man, I really should be freaking out a little bit more about this, but it's okay. And then it started dawning on me. Oh no. Like we were supposed to be heading to Creston, California. I always talk about Buttonwill, the, the town where there's nothing. The 58. Oh man. I was supposed to be in the middle of nowhere in central California, broken down with two little kids and a pregnant wife and two out of control Labrador retrievers. That would have been really bad. Can you imagine the tow truck driver showing up and say, can you fit all of us in your in the back of your cab? And so like in the midst of this, like this week, like in this is growth. Like I'm so like, just like my trust in the Lord and like giving thanks to him. Like, Lord, thank you for getting me so sick last week. Thank you that this breakdown just happened here. And I've just been telling myself, I'm sure hope that I've grown enough that if I did break down in Button Willow and I had the two kids and the pregnant wife and the two, like I'd still be able to be content. But I'm just glad that he didn't like push me there yet, you know, like baby steps. And the point of all of this, there's 10 guys that get healed, 10 guys that are calling out to Jesus. He responds to all of them. One comes back. And we see that this picture, where this whole story is going to culminate, we're going to see this, this harder text that I'm about ready to go into. But then in chapter 18, next week, and maybe two, I don't know how long it's going to take, but there's a couple stories about prayer. The very next one is about a widow who nags a king to death until finally he says, all right, I'll do whatever you want if you just leave me alone. And Jesus says, that's what I want you to be like with me. That's how I want you to pray. So we see here this relationship that God cares about us. When we're in our dire situations and we call out to him, he doesn't always respond the way we think that he should, but he definitely responds the way that is best for us. And then when he answers, he wants us to return. Like I'm horrible at journals and like keeping a diary. I mean, it's like a, I think that's a girl thing to do. No offense to any non-girls or like whatever. But, but like I'm just bad about it. But when it comes to prayers, like I have gotten good at like when I'm in stressful situations, I make a little note. This is what's really burdening me. I'm really worried about this. This is what I'm praying about. I don't always remember, bless you, to go back to check it out. But it's neat in your life when you kind of go through your little book or wherever you keep it. They kind of go, oh, man, we were really stressed out about this. And God totally responded. And you get this sort of history developed of how faithful God has been in your life. And so this next section, verses 20 through the end of the chapter, situation kind of turns. This week on Monday, it was I was sitting there preparing. I'm going, oh, man, I feel so bad for the first time visitor that's going to walk in. You know, like maybe you've never been to church in your whole life. And then this is the text you come into. I'm sitting there like scratching my head. How am I best going to handle the delivery of this so that the people that are all into eschatology end times, like that they get what they want. And then the people who don't care about that stuff, like I'm really in that camp. 
Like, I really have never really been interested in this stuff, but I'm kind of required to know about it because it's in the Word. Like, how do I factor this? And Anna walked in the room, and she's like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, like, what do you mean? She's like, the look on your face. And I'm like, oh, I'm getting ready for Sunday. Is it that bad? Is it like, is my face that, like, distorted right now, scratching my head? So I'm going to try to handle this in a way that gives us the big picture, to kind of help us to understand. We'll see how I do. In verse 20, the Pharisees kind of come back into the story. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So the Pharisees have been asking Jesus about this, the kingdom of God. When's it coming? Is it here yet? Are we there yet? Like, I kind of feel like, you know, on your road trip, I got road trips on my mind, little kids. Are we there yet, dad? Are we there yet? It's like, we've only been five minutes. It's a five hour drive. It's a long way. Like, are we, when's it coming, Jesus? When's the kingdom of God coming? And he answers them. And he said, you know, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Like people are going to say, oh, there it is. Or here it is. He says, hey, it's right here in your midst. Some translations say it's right in the middle of you, but it really is like in your midst. Like they're asking these questions. Jesus, the Messiah, is standing in their midst that the kingdom of God has been ushered in. John the Baptist has been proclaiming the day of the Lord that here he is. He's here. And Jesus doesn't really answer their question. Like they say when he's like, well, it's kind of in your midst already. And you're not there's not going to be all of these signs. And then I started thinking, like, why are they asking this question? And what I think is about this question that they're asking, see, Jews during this time, Israel was not a nation. There were Jewish people living in Israel, which was controlled by Rome. Rome had an iron fist. They held them down. There was freedom within their authority, but they were brutal. And they so desperately wanted to get out of this that they want the Messiah to come so that their lives would get better, that they would have some authority, that they would no longer be held down by anybody. And I think that they missed the whole point of what Jesus or the word is trying to convey about the kingdom of God. And I think that there's a a measure of caution to us as Christians today in our world, in our time. We live in an election year and I'm all for voting. I'm all for support. Like, like we're submitting to the authority. We want to get out and get our vote out to the Christian values. But at the same time, I think we need to caution ourselves to where our hope really lives. Like as we defend Christian values and as we want to vote for those that value the things that we value. I think we need to guard ourselves. Are we really desiring the kingdom of God to come? Or do we just want to make our life more comfortable and more casual, like in in what we're comfortable with? Like, are we really longing, like, no, Lord, come? Because there's no promises that the whole world is going to be transformed because the United States world power is going to basically fix everything. And so I say that real, like our hope is in his coming and his restoration. But as we submit to our authorities, our authorities say, vote and get involved. And we kind of write the rules. So, so there's this fine line and I think we need to keep our hearts in check. And so as he kind of looks at the Pharisees and says, you know, it's not going to show up like this. He then pulls his apostles, the found, the guys that are going to be the fathers of the early church. He pulls them aside. And he said to his disciples in verse 22, the days will come when you long to see one of the days of the son of man 
and you will not see it. So first Jesus looks at him and he's like, listen, the days are going to come when you're longing for the end, that you so desperately want the end to come and you're not going to see it. And this phrase, the son of man, Luke has referenced this a bunch through the gospel of Luke. Now, what's he talking about? Well, if you'll turn with me over to Daniel, if you want. Daniel's in the Old Testament. It's like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Maybe there's a book in between. I think it's right after Ezekiel. But in Daniel chapter 7, we've been working through on Wednesday nights through through Daniel. The first six chapters are really awesome. They're like total like kids stories, so many great truths. Then you get to chapter 7 through the end, and it's like so prophetical. Prophetical, I think that's a word. It sounded good coming out. But I kind of lost track. I'd missed a week. And then, you know, Rick has been, Rick, Rick Restivo has been teaching through Wednesday nights. And he's like, hey, Gunnar, can you, can you pick up next week? It's like, oh, yeah, what is it? Where are we at? Are we at the lion's den or what are we? Is it some fun story? He's like, no, 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 chapter seven. I'm like, oh, you can't teach chapter seven. You're calling me in for like the, the hardest chapter of all of Daniel. But in this chapter seven, Daniel has this vision, this dream. And in this dream amongst the sea, he sees these four creatures coming out of the water, one by one of varying like intensity to where the last one was so horrible that he didn't know what to make of it. And he's like pondering this fourth animal. And all of a sudden, God shows up on scene and crushes it. See, these four animals represented the four nations that would rise. The last one was Rome. In the context that Jesus is speaking, Rome is still there. The Jewish people knew from prophecy that Rome would go down and then God would take over. And then in verse 13, after the God, the father is there referred to as the ancient of days, we see verse 13 and it says, this is Daniel speaking. I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. See this all through the old Testament. You'll see the phrase son of man. Normally it just is talking about just humans, like just mere man in the, in the scope or comparison between God and man, or just the son of man, like mortals. But here we see one like the son of man. This is Jesus. This picture of the Messiah was coming and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I'm with Daniel. Because it's like, okay, I read that last one. But here's this picture of the Messiah, the Son of Man coming. All authority for eternity is being handed over to him. All nations, all peoples will submit to him. And this is the picture that the Jewish people, when's the kingdom coming? Like, when's it happening? Is it here yet? If you're the Messiah, is this all about to start taking place? And back in Luke chapter 17... He says, you're going to long for this day of the Son of Man. You're going to want this day to be here so badly, but you're not going to see it. He continues in verse 23. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky 
shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. That's interesting. Verse 23 contrasted with verse 21. He told the Pharisees, they're not going to say, here it is, there it is. But to the apostles or the disciples, he says, they're going to say, there it is, here it is. Don't go chasing after it. He says, don't worry. When the Son of Man appears, it's going to be lightning. And when you see the light, it lights up the whole part of the world. In the United States or in San Diego, we don't see it that often. But when I've gone to the Midwest, like during the summertime, the electrical storms that they have, it's like you don't hear lightning, you don't see rain, but it's just like the light is like an electrical night show. Like it's just lighting up. I remember the first time going there, I'm like, what is that? Like it's lightning. Where's the lightning? All I see is like these flashes of lights. Like, oh, it's electrical. People in the Midwest are so much hardier than we are when it comes to weather. <laughs> We have like 60 degree sprinkles and we're like panicking. Oh, we have the most treacherous storm that we've seen in man, since like last year. <laughs> you know, it's horrible. There was three accidents on the road, you know, like. But Jesus says, listen, when the son of man appears, it's going to be like this lightning. The, there's going to be no missing that the day has come. Then he says, verse 25. But he for he. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This just doesn't seem to fit. In their picture of prophecy of the coming king, like in the Old Testament, when you see the coming of the Messiah, referring to the second coming, it's like so intense that you, it just is going to be obvious. But then there's a suffering servant. It's in the Old Testament, but it's so small and seems insignificant, like how easy it is to miss it. But it's there. And Jesus says, but first, I'm marching to Jerusalem right now. I'm on the way to Jerusalem, and I must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus understood what was going to happen. If you'll turn with me to the right, to John, the very beginning of John. The Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. The Apostle John was standing there when Jesus said this stuff. And in John chapter 1, verse 11, John writes this. He, that's Jesus, came to his own, that's the Jewish people, and those, who were his, and those who were his own did not receive him. And so you see this picture of Israel rejecting the Messiah. That's all we were reading. I'm back in Luke. I'm sorry if you flipped all the way over for that, you know. But Jesus understood. He's like, listen, before the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and all of this stuff, first... I must go and die and give my life as a ransom for many. Verse 26, and he's going to give these two illustrations between Noah and Lot. So verse 26, we read, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying. They were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, I want to point out here, we're going to cover this text quickly, so don't be alarmed. But the people that were destroyed, they are the ones that were taken away. In the story of Noah, if you listen to Bible tapes like I do, Noah's building his big ark. Everybody's looking at him like, what are you building this big ark for? There's never even been rain up to this point. And he's building this gigantic square looking boat. He's going to load up all of the animals. He's going to take his wife and his sons. Everybody's mocking him. God says, keep building in faith. Then the rain started 
And the rain came and came and came and came. They loaded up the ark. The ark flowed away. Everybody else was destroyed and taken away as the floods came. The people who remained were the righteous. The same with Lot, verse 28. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling and they were planting. They were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Remember, Lot had pleaded, Lord, spare, like, don't let your wrath come. I can find 50 men. I can find 25 men. Oh, if I find five men. And the Lord was so gracious. No one was righteous there. It was a city of wickedness. And then when he left, the whole town was destroyed. Verse 30 continues. It will be the same on that day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must go must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. So as they're going and God's wrath came, the people who stayed were the righteous ones. The ones who were destroyed and taken away were those that were being basically destroyed for their unrighteousness. As they were leaving, Lot's wife turns back and looks at her old town. All of this stuff that she'd like worked for and cared for. In 2007, when the fires came and I got that reverse 911 call, it was like four in the morning. Like I think Anna had packed up some stuff, but it was like four in the morning. We're like loading up, getting everything together, trying to take all of our possessions that like, you know, what do we really like? I'm just like, well, let it all burn. But Anna's like, no, we got to get the pictures. We got to get this. I'm thinking, well, I need like the social security cards, like the working documents, not necessarily the memento documents. But it was like this whole, as we're leaving, if everything is destroyed, what do we want to take back? What do we love? And she has lots of wife looked back at her town in her flesh, the things that she'd longed for. She no longer, she didn't really care about the things of the Lord. She was caring about the things the material things. And as she looked back, her heart was wrong and she was turned into a pillar of salt and destroyed. And Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Keep your eyes looking forward to the things of the Lord. Verse 33 says, for whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. It's funny, like, it's like backwards. If you really want life, Put your faith in God and follow him. Be faithful. That's where life is. But see, our flesh and our thinking, what we think is, well, if we want life, then we need to like hoard and keep everything. And my body's the temple. And I'm going to do whatever I can do to extend my life as long as possible. I'm going to hold on to the things of the world. And he says, you actually lose it. It's funny. I always used to say when I was a, when I was a SEAL instructor and the kids, it's like, like without fail in my life and in watching it and physical things, people who are totally afraid of getting hurt, they always are the ones that break their legs. The people who are crazy like I was in my old, never get hurt because they're like not worried about getting hurt. But if you're so worried about preserving yourself, I guarantee it's like self-fulfilled prophecy and you do yourself in. It seems like it should work the other way around. And Jesus is telling us, if you're seeking to save this life, you're going to lose it. But realize that life is beyond this earth that we know, and that's what we have to chase. He goes on, verse 34 through 37, this 
not to be confused, for those of you that are hanging with me that care about um, that big $3 word, eschatology, this is not talking about the rapture. So often this is confused about the rapture. Verse 34 says, I tell you, on that night there will be two in bed, two, wait, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. And the whole context here of Noah and Lot, the ones that were taken were the ones that were destroyed. And one will be left. There will, two, there will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. And in this picture, this illustration, we see that one happens during daytime, one happens at nighttime. Going back to the lightning, the whole universal truth that on all people, all times of the world, when the Son of Man appears again, it's going to be light somewhere and it'll be dark somewhere else, but everybody will be affected by it. Then verse 36 says, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other will be left. This corresponds greatly with Matthew 24. If you want to do homework and study up on this, Matthew 24 is where you go to get the fuller picture of this. Some of us have verse 36 in brackets. In the original manuscripts or the earlier manuscripts, not the originals, we don't have the originals, but in the manuscripts, there's copies of translations of the New Testament all around the world. Not all of them include verse 36. Verse 36 very much looks like Matthew 24. And they just don't know. It's like in the very earliest ones, like half of them have this, the other ones don't. This isn't to scare us about the word, but whenever I see this stuff, it amazes me that God and the way that he has preserved the scriptures for us to look at, he's done it in a way that it cannot be manipulated or distorted, that we can look at this text and go, wow, we absolutely have the word of God. It's fascinating to me. That's a whole other subject. I'm afraid I'm losing some people at this point. Verse 37, the apostles, I love them. They're like, I can just see them. They're like, oh man, Jesus has so lost me. What is he talking about? And answering, they said to him, where, Lord? Like, where are they going to be taken? Like, is this going to Disneyland? Or are they going to like, what's happening to them? And he, Jesus, said to them, where the body is, they're also the vultures will be gathered. Kind of like the people that are taken are destroyed. Death lingers and vultures come to take away dead bodies. Now, the biggest question I always ask when I come to Bible study is, so what? So what? Some of us probably are like, so what? Like, I don't care about this. Let's get out of here. Like, how does this apply? And I've really been wrestling with how do I deal with this we're going to go over to first thessalonians chapter four if you can go to first thessalonians chapter four and just kind of wait for me and in first thessalonians chapter four it's before timothy so in first thessalonians chapter four what i decided to do is to try to give a sketch over what's jesus saying and what's like the big picture of this and I found a little slide. I found something. It was like a drawing. I think it's probably from the 1940s. There are things in the Bible that are right-handed things. Things we like fight over and die over. Like Jesus is God. The Bible's the inspired word of God. He was born of a virgin. Like these are like the essentials. 
Like we fight and we die. Well, maybe not you, but these are the things that historically Christians have given their lives over that we do not bend over their thing, over these. Then there are other things that are left-handed issues. Things that we have convictions about, but we don't fight and divide over. This is one of those things that's a left-handed thing. I was trained, educated, studied under a dispensational school. I am dispensational in my thinking. You might not even know what that word means. It's not really that important. But so I'm, I'm presenting what I understand from my study of the word of God, what I think that it says. I'm not here to talk about the other positions, but this is a left-handed thing. I can only tell you from what I think it, what, like, how does it, the so what question. And I can guarantee you the big so what? God didn't give us this to like fight and argue and divide over. This is not at all what that's about. So the next slide, I copied it. I found it somewhere we can go there. This is like, I think some brother like drew this in the 50s. It's a little crooked. But what I want to do is, is before you look at this little flow chart, I want to kind of explain it. So back here, this line kind of represents like when Jesus entered into the world. There's Israel, Jesus came. He had his, his life of 33 years the last three years where he had his ministry, where all the teaching comes from. Today's story, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, happens during this picture, like during this window, very close to the cross. He's going to Jerusalem. It's a matter of weeks before he'll be executed on the cross. As he's talking to them, he's talking about his return right here. Okay? So... So at this point, he's talking about the Son of Man's coming, which is future. He says, but first, I've got to go to the cross and suffer and die. So at the cross, Jesus is executed. He's buried on the third day. He rises. And then, uh, no, my math is, I think it was seven days later that, no, 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 50 days later that Pentecost happens. The church is formed. Jesus ascends into heaven. And we have the church age. This is where we are now looking back at the cross. The whole rapture, where does this come from? And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is where we go. This is kind of like the so what, because I think that this is the next step that we are kind of awaiting. Could happen as I speak? It didn't happen. I was kind of waiting for it. I was kind of like, that would be really cool if you're talking about the rapture. And then it like, (laughs) it could happen at any moment. Could be another 2,000 years. We don't know. And I guarantee you the time that when anybody gives a date for it, I guarantee you it's not that date. Guarantee it. It's going to be a day when, when it's unknown. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, we read this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. When he says asleep, he's talking about those who have died. So that you will not grieve as the rest who do not have hope. I love Christian funerals. There was a funeral at the Rock Church like I, 10, 15 years ago. And it was the coolest funeral I'd ever been to. Often when I talk about it, I accidentally refer to it as the lady's wedding. And Anna will like elbow me and go, Connor, it was her funeral, not her wedding. But it was like this party that for those of us who have trusted in Christ, death is a whole nother experience. Like there's only one, like there's another funeral that, I mean, I don't know when it's going to happen. It probably sounds horrible saying this when I said it during the first service. But those of you that know George and Evie Farrington, like, like statistically speaking, he'll pass away before I do. Like, just like I'm, like he's 85 and I'm not. 
But I anticipate his funeral will be probably one of the coolest funerals I ever go to. Because that brother so loves the Lord and is like so ready for Jesus' return that he wants to get out of this place. And so when I go to his funeral, whenever that day comes, and I would say this to his face, I'm not talking behind his back. Like, George is a man that lived his life in a way that I want to live my life in following after Christ. And I can guarantee you that in George's death, he'll show me what dying is all about. And so we're told here, when we look at those who have died in Christ, we don't have to grieve like the world. Because the world, when they face death, there's no hope. Their whole hope is based on the now. Our all hopes focused on the then. That's where our hope is. He goes on to say, verse 14, For we believe that as Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That word in can be translated through, which is just an awesome thought, that when you die, it's like through Jesus, that Jesus has flipped the switch. It's not an accident. It wasn't coincidence. It's that Jesus has taken you to be with him. For, in the, for this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and will remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So here's this picture that Christ is coming back. The, turned it off. The rapture section here, that Jesus is going to appear in the air The church is going to be caught up with him, which we'll read in a second. But it says that the dead in Christ will rise first. So if you're alive, your whole body's going. And if you died as a Christian, your body will be resurrected. And you're going to meet him in the air. Don't ask me to explain any more than that. Our dear brother, Dr. George Hare, who preached here this fall, he gave one of the best funerals I'd ever been to. He's kind of hunched back and he was at the funeral. He said, I don't know why the dead in Christ are going to rise first. But my sneaking suspicion is because they have 6 to 12 feet farther to go than the rest of us. And I'm like, so now I can't read this verse without thinking that. They got a little bit further to go, so maybe that's why they got to go up first. Okay, verse 16, we'll kind of back up a little. Oh, no, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. And so here we see that the, from that passage, we see that, that Jesus is coming back. Not all the way to earth. He's going to meet us in the sky. Those who have trusted in Christ are going to meet him in the sky. And from that point for eternity future, the saints will be with him. My understanding is that the seven-year period from Daniel, the 70th week, will begin again. The temple at this point in Israel would be rebuilt. The slaughtering of the animals, the sacrifices, everything will be restored, which hasn't been in a long time. If you go to Israel, I should say when you go to Israel, be praying about it. You're saving money, right? There is a whole section outside of the Wailing Wall. It's the temple like whatever. They are in the process. You go there to see their plans of they are getting ready to get the temple going again. They've, it's fascinating. And so during this time, there's a tribulational period, seven years. As we enter to this point, the Son of Man will return. One will be taken, one will remain. You will not enter into the thousand-year reign in unrighteousness. This is where those one in bed will be taken, will be destroyed. 
and the righteous will enter into this reign, Revelation chapter 20, where Christ will reign and rule for a thousand years. Literally is my understanding of it. At the end of the thousand years comes a great white throne where Jesus is going to judge everybody. Everybody will be resurrected from the dead. At that point, you'll either make it into heaven or you're going to go to hell. You can go back to the next slide. So welcome to Valley Baptist Church if you're visiting for the first time. <laughs> I, uh, but where I want to go is verse 18. Like, what's the so what? Is this given to us to like fight, argue, dispute over? Absolutely not. We do want to know about it, but verse 18 is the key of 1 Thessalonians. It says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. I don't know about you, but funerals are a little depressing. Like from this side of heaven, like I've never been to heaven and come back. And when I see my body breaking down or a loved one's body breaking down and I see them dying. And if I think that this is all there is, that sure is depressing. Like it really is discouraging. But see, everything is built upon who Christ is. And if Christ is Lord, and I think that's a big if, like I think he is. I think evidence shows that he is Lord, that he is creator of the universe. When he was executed on the cross, we were told that our sins were placed upon him. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. That he was buried on the third day he rose again. And we're told that by trusting in him, his righteousness is imputed to us. That we're credited with his righteousness. And when I look at the whole of this Luke chapter 17, what I see first and foremost is that God is a God who loves us. We see these 10 lepers calling out to him, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. He responds. The one comes back. We see that he wants all of them to come back. And then when we come to chapter 18, which we'll get to next, next week, chapter 18, after Jesus talks about all this, this coming to the son of man, the next thing that Luke starts with is, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And I think that as Jesus is talking about this, they're going, what in the world? And they're getting like horrified and they're kind of falling on their knees like, Lord, help us. Lord, help us. God wants us to see him as much as we can handle for his whole majesty. See, whether you think God is small or you think God is huge, that doesn't change who he is. He is so awesome. He's the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. He spoke everything we know into existence. And the bigger we see God as, our life goes so much easier. When you're like, if I write a, if I write a song, like I'm not really musical, but I'm planning on it. Like, like the day is going to come when I'm going to write a song. I'm going to get a band together, and it's going to be a country song, and it's going to be about how I lost my transmissions, and and like it was. It's going to be great. It's going to be. But like when your world goes bad and you're discouraged, your greatest problem is so tiny in, in consideration of who God is, and God wants us to know how big He is so that we can navigate this life. There was a, I don't even remember who the guy was, but he was a, a well-known preacher. He graduated seminary. I think he went to Moody Bible Institute. And after he graduated, like a year later, he was invited back to, to share a message 
at their chapel service at the seminary. And as he went to go speak, the president of the seminary, who is another big guy's name, who I don't even know his name. I'm just working on your guys' names. That's all I really care about. He came and he sat at the front row as this guy began to preach. Within five minutes, the president of the seminary got up and walked out of the chapel. And the guy speaking was like, oh, man, I am in so much trouble. Like the president just walked out on me. I, man, I failed. And so then after he's done, he goes and he finds the president. He's like, I'm sorry, am I in trouble? Did I do something that offended you or did I do something wrong? And the president's like, no, I'm just really busy. But whenever our students come back, I just want to see if they have a big God or a small God. And he's like, in five minutes, I could tell that you had a big God. And if you have a big God, everything's going to be fine. So I, I have a lot of stuff to do. And I think that's so true in our own lives. God is huge. And he wants us to bow down and worship him. And if you've never trusted in Christ, it's as simple as believing. Pray, read your Bible, ask him to show you more. And if you're walking with him, he wants us to walk by faith. Understand that God is huge and he's chasing after us. And the bottom line is I think God is really awesome. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I um, your, your word has so much to reveal, Lord, to us. We thank you that you've given us this to know. Lord, we thank you for the stuff that is clear, that Jesus is God, that he lived the perfect life, that he died for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God of love and compassion and mercy, and it's this nature of yours that has created um, this relationship that we can have with you through Christ. Father, we pray, Lord, for those here maybe who haven't trusted in you as Savior, Lord, that you would help them to come to know you as Savior, that you would help to connect the dots for them. Father, for those of us who have trusted in you as Savior, Lord, we pray that you would continue to open up um, our understanding of who you are, that your righteousness, your holiness, your love, your mercy, Lord, all of these things, Lord, that we would have a greater understanding of. Lord, we are in awe of you. We love you so much, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.